clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. Hello there again, everybody, and welcome back. It's always back because I know you've been here before. Welcome back to Ots Tyrion. It is I, Jordan Cruciola, along with your co-host Sam Weinman. And thank God for that. And Sam, we have a very special guest in the room once again today. A, an embarrassment so of riches, I feel like, in our lives, these guests. Do you want to <laughs> tee up our guest to come uh, in and join the conversation? Yes. We have a very talented filmmaker who I had the pleasure of uh, being a part of the same anthology as, um, but also uh, spent a little time at Blumhouse together mm. while I was interning there. Yeah. Uh, Guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Vivian Vaughn, and um, I am a horror filmmaker and, you know, mostly a director, but sometimes a writer. Mm -hmm. And um, like Sam said, I used to work at Blumhouse. Um, I used to write for Fangoria, mm. and uh, now I work at Netflix while I try to monetize my directing. <laughs> yeah. We love monetization. <laughs> we are recessionistas. We do this however we can, goddammit. Exactly. Also, Vivian's short A Christmas Miracle is my favorite entry in December, the entire anthology. So um, it has Barbara Crampton, and it's gorgeous. And it actually has, like, I, I know, Vivian, you've heard me say this many times. It has the best scare. Um, and you all can find oh. it on Crypt TV if you don't want to get through all of December, which, listen, I don't blame you. <laughs> I was going to say, so, for you to say that it's your favorite scare in all of December, that like we really need to underscore the fact that when you say that, you mean like two and a half 400, hours and shorts. dozens of shorts. 400,000. Yes. <laughs> Listen, they say it's 24 days to hell or whatever. It's more like, I think it's like 29 or 31. I mean, <laughs> it just keeps going. At least 28. Yeah. It's a real, it's a real lengthy calendar, but out of, <laughs> out of, of every that single scare, mm -hmm. that scare is, I mean, it's it's fucking expertly crafted. So um, go find it and go watch it. Thank you so much. I I know you've said it before, but every time you say it, my cold heart warms. <laughs> well, you know what? I have ADD. I'm probably going to say it a hundred more times and forget <laughs> that I did. So <laughs> now, Vivian, what is it that you have brought? This is this is exciting for everybody. I'd like to think because we're breaking form a little bit with the kind of stuff we typically talk about. What have you brought for us to discuss on Oxterion today? I am so excited about this. Um, I am so excited because I feel like, well, first of all, I was nervous to ask you guys if I could do this because it doesn't fall within your traditional format of mm -hmm, being mm -hmm. a feature. This mm -hmm. is an episode of the Masters of Horror TV series, and mm -hmm. it is Lucky McKee's episode called Sick Girl. Mm -hmm. And I'm super excited to talk about it because it is just a gem. It is one of my favorite things ever made. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've always wanted to talk about it in some capacity, but no one has really ever seen it. <laughs> Well, we are here to, and, and a great thing about this, and it's great when we have a chance to plug people being able to see shit for free, Masters of Horror is on Tubi, and you don't yeah. need to pay anything Love to watch Tubi. Tubi. So, and I mean, the Disaster Podcast, Tubi comes through all the time, so. Absolutely. Um, big yeah. fan of that. But yeah, you can just watch it for free. It is season one, episode 10, I believe, of That's Masters right, yeah. of Horror. So it's very accessible to you. And 
as far as it being different than the typical form, Sam, yes. I would like to interject. Yeah, because while it is, while it does break form as technically being TV, Masters of Horror had a very rich rental life Mm -hmm. and they were broken up and put on the shelf as uh, individual titles. Uh, that you could pick up at the video store. And okay. so I I knew Masters of Horror. I didn't have Showtime. I didn't have cable or anything like that. I only knew it from the movie series. So I didn't realize it was a TV show. That's so stupid. I Until you brought it up. So uh, so okay. yeah, uh, I I feel like that is a great argument for, uh, for this episode of this podcast. Also, Absolutely. it's queer as fuck. <laughs> I know that's also why I wanted to talk about it. I was like, now is the time. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, it's a it's a Lucky McKee special, and it stars his his ever faithful and ever recognizable um, leading lady, Angela Bettis. And um, as as Lucky was wont to do uh, in a very appreciated chunk of his career in the two thousands, particularly. Um, making the lead pretty gay really like taking a swing there and making the lead pretty gay like it's pretty it's really nice that that's just like a thing you expect of him when it's not a thing you can expect in horror basically ever at all practically so the fact that that is you see Angela Bettis on screen you know it's Lucky McKee even if I didn't know this was queer coming into it because it was something you had highlighted in our like working out how we were going to uh when we were going to do it uh it was like oh well I could have guessed that like odds on this is going to be like weirdly gay and weird and gay because of what I'm seeing in front of me and to be able to have that expectation in horror few and far between Absolutely, especially coming from, you know, a male director in this mm-hmm. time period. It's like pretty much unheard of. Yeah, I think uh I think this episode it came out in 2005, was it 2005 or 2006? It is I believe it's 2006 uh, from okay, what 2006, I Okay, 2006. 2006. And it's uh season 1 episode 10 if you're yes. looking for it. I uh, I would love to set the stage a little bit for this year, if that's mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, normally you guys hear me talk about, um, you know, any taunt basically, <laughs> all, or I'll dive in with Britney Spears or some Walmart exclusive. But in this case, I think it's really important for people to look at the history of marriage equality when considering this film. Okay. And so, because what was happening in the 2000s is there was a shift culturally uh, to talking about queer rights mm-hmm. um mainly because we were acting and we've talked about this a lot in the, the podcast jordan like a lot of the aughts humor was as if we had moved on and everybody had their rights yeah yeah it was like everybody's fine so we can make jokes at everybody's expense because we're post bigotry but here's yeah. the fucking reality right. 2003 um up until 2003 it was still like any sort of gay sex was illegal because of sodomy laws yes illegal Mm -hmm. that's the court case that struck it down 2004 is when marriage we started seeing marriages because at the end of 2003 massachusetts ruled Mm -hmm. that they would begin to uh have gay marriages or same-sex marriages and then the city of san francisco so boldly just began marrying people to challenge california law so this is 2004 and why that's important is because bush being the the president that he was decided to like run his second term on a marriage, um, like an amendment to the constitution that would prevent queer people from being able to marry. I just, the reason why I'm so seeped in it is because I'm watching all of his right now for the doc. I've been, Uh I've been going through all of his speeches and I cannot believe how blatantly homophobic he is when addressing our country. 
And so that is that is what's happening in 2004. Um, and in, into 2005, 2005 is when he, you know, is back in office. So mm-hmm. for his second term. So this is coming in 2006. And what is so interesting is that states are just starting to get their rights mm-hmm. in different places like uh, New York in 2005, 2006 is New Jersey. Um, and we're not even at California, which is 08. And then you got your whole American Apparel legalized gay shirts, which that's its own mini sode. And <laughs> I have one in my room right now. <laughs> Viv, did you have one? I love that. I, I, I had, one? yeah. No, I didn't because I lived in New Mexico and American Apparel was too cool for us. So okay, okay. I definitely, it. I it is still in my in my my tank top section of clothing. The highlighter yellow. Oh my god, I have one too. Highlighter gay yellow tank top that Gordon. after after marriage equality was passed, I put a D on the end, so it now says legalized oh, gay. Oh, oh, that was so my beautiful. little. That was my oh. little nod. That was a fun pride in San Francisco. <laughs> In, in 2009, and people don't even realize just how <clears throat> fucked up, you know, queer politics were up until recently. In 2009, right. I had a, a legalized gay T-shirt, and so did my boyfriend. We kissed in a picture and put it on um, Insta- or on Facebook, mm-hmm. and and they took it down um, because then oh. you could you could report, um, yeah, because we were kissing. And so um, that was something that could and did happen regularly was the policing of queer, uh, queer love. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was just nowhere to report it. So anyways, throwing that out there. So when this when this comes, because all these different states were um, were debating same sex marriage, anti same sex marriage activists were right. just flooding the airwaves with propaganda. And this propaganda was about children. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. somehow got it in America's head that like it was a that that it was an attack on children and they needed to protect their kids. So they did this with ads that were about education, ads that were about parenting mm-hmm. and and demonizing these predatory queer people, which, of course, we've seen over time. Oh God, yeah. I bring that up because in this story, there is a neighbor like the B story of all mm-hmm. of this is the neighbor. So I just want to have that backdrop there. We'll right. come back to it. But. That's what's happening in 06. Mm-hmm. Oh, also, and Britney Spears is no longer performing. I think you all should know that because Britney, because well, she just had her remix album and that's in 05. And I think I think the important segue to come off of that from Britney is um, when this episode arrives at whatever point we decide that it will, um, in, in our in in our rear view at this point is the documentary framing Britney Spears, which has re- you know brought up a conversation a, a lot on social media, hopefully among your friends and your family members about the vitriolic, abusive, misogynist, um, heinous landscape that was celebrity blog culture and celebrity journalism proper in the 2000s. And I think because language and discourse has moved, you know, so far so fast compared to where we were at this time in say 2006, I think in a way, um, as much as we have gotten better at talking about things and we have more tools in the broad discourse to talk about disenfranchisement, marginalization, queer folks, you know, people of color, we, we are, we are analyzing those things. We are interrogating marginalization in ways that we never have before. But I think what we haven't properly done in terms of the 2000s, because it's so close, but it feels so forever away culture-wise, you know, Perez Hilton, villain of the era, you know, attempted to do his whole reputational, you know, laundering about face by becoming like a positive, you know, happy messaging at this point, irrelevant person on the internet. Um, 
but we haven't actually reconciled the violence of that time. No. Like what I've seen a lot of feedback from people who are processing the Framing Britney Spears documentary right now are saying like, oh my God, I, I was 17 then, I was 13 then, I was 22 then. Hearing this now, I kind of forgot how bad it was. Like I didn't realize at the time that I was so steeped in how horrible, how horribly we spoke about women and bodies mm-hmm. and celebrity and the meat market of fame culture. I hadn't really taken an account of what that did to me, like what I'd internalized based on that. And so I think because we, again, because of the you know positive steps that we've made forward, I don't think we've actually done the proper process of reconciliation to stop taking for granted in the ways that we do um, just how bad things were then compared to how they are now. And yes, we have much further to go, but I, I would like for what part of this conversation is, and thank you for bringing it to us, Vivian, is a bit of touching on that reconciliation where what Lucky McKee presents to us in Sick Girl is something we absolutely could not have. We we could take that for granted if it showed up now in 2021. The fact that he made what he did with Angela Bettis in this very gay story in 2006, that was out of fucking pocket, especially in something produced by Mick Garris with contemporaries alongside of him making shorts like um, John Carpenter, like who we love, but who is not, you know, like a paragon of intersectionality, which is fine. That's not his lane. It's not what I'm asking him for. But yeah. the fact that this sits in the middle of the extremely white, extremely male, probably mostly straight, <laughs> at least to our knowledge demographic of the filmmakers tapped as masters of horror, enlisted into this anthology to bring their expertise forward and make shorts in this compilation. Um, What Lucky McKee did as far as allowing for, you know, I would say insisting upon a different point of view in his, his films and in this short is absolutely apart from what any of his contemporaries, what Lucky McKee does with things like May, with things like Sick Girl, with things like But I'm a Cheerleader, or not But I'm a Cheerleader, All Cheerleaders Die, that is not the norm and indeed is insisting upon broader inclusivity and horror in a way that none of his contemporaries were doing. So I will stop talking and I will say, please, Vivian. Well, I have a couple of things that I wanted to speak to on this front. The first is that I did a little bit of research on this episode and Masters of Horror in general um, in preparation for this podcast. And I really couldn't find a lot of information. Like Mm -hmm. there was a handful of interviews here and there with Lucky McKee where he kind of, they were asking him, you know, about his other projects, like The Woman or May or whatever. And, um, he would kind of like get asked about this in passing and it was Mm. just like responses to one question here or there. Um, But I did find this Daily Dead article from 2018 where the writer had revisited um, this episode and it had a really great quote that I wanted to read because it kind of like, you know, contextualizes where we were at in terms of society when this was released. And it says, While McKee and co-writer Sean Hood are refreshingly matter-of-fact about the character's sexuality, an attitude that's actually progressive, given that America was still patting itself on the back for embracing will and grace at the time, Mm -hmm. there is the sense that finding the right partner has been (laughs) difficult for both women, and that being gay hasn't made that any easier. Ida, who's main character, Ida's landlady, represents that hateful part of the population 
that believes homosexuality is an abomination and says as much. And though that's as political as the film gets, it does present an additional burden at a time when one of the characters may or may not be turning into a bug. It's mm-hmm. a burden that these women carry with them at all times, the film suggests, which can obviously be extrapolated to the larger population. The world can be a difficult place. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that, um, you know, I was uh, a teenager when Masters of Horror came out Mm -hmm. and I was very into horror. And I remember seeing, um, I think it was on, this is so embarrassing, Eli (laughs) Roth's MySpace. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Um, Sam, our resident MySpace correspondent. There will be no MySpace slander here. Yeah. Yeah. No, (laughs) Sam's on it. Um, yeah, no, my space is not the embarrassing part of that statement. Um, um, he posted a picture of like the masters of horror dinner Mm -hmm. and they had these dinners. I think they were probably organized by McGarris, Mm -hmm. um, where all the masters would just like get together and chat. And that's how the TV series came to be because they had already like formed this group and Mm. they were like, well, we might as well do like an anthology thing. Um, I remember seeing that when I was like 15 and being like, oh my God, I would just like die to be at that. If one day I could be at a master's of horror (laughs) dinner, like I've made it. Oh (laughs) my God. Like I couldn't, they were all there. Like all of my idols were Mm -hmm. there, but they were all, they are all straight white guys. Right. Um, Let me just, I'll just run down a list of like some of uh, the series directed by credits just for your information. Stuart Gordon, Dario Argento, John Carpenter, Joe Dante, Mick Garris, Tobe Hooper, John Landis, Brad Anderson, Larry Conan, et cetera, et cetera, John McNaughton, Takeshi Miike. There you go. Exactly. So I I wanted to see now um, that I was doing research for this podcast, I was like, well, I want to see if there were any women involved. Mm. And I looked at all the writers and directors and I did find... um, there were at the time none but there is um now rebecca swan who is a trans um i think she's a writer and director maybe Mm. just a director but at the time you know other than rebecca there was no women involved Mm -hmm. in in writing or directing capacities right yeah which is very on message for the era yeah exactly because like it's not like you know it, it there has been certainly a <clears throat> in the past 10 years there has been a greater move toward like you know hopefully boosting and financing women who are making films generally and making horror films specifically um but at this time like it's not like we didn't have any options it's not like it's not like Catherine Bigelow didn't exist right. you know it, it's not like it, it's not like um Mary Lambert didn't exist. We had women who had. I thought directed. women didn't like to make horror. Well, there's just so few of them. You know, that, it's is that you. I mean, it's, it's hard to find. <laughs> it's hard to find women who want to do this. But like, so it, it you know, while there wouldn't have necessarily been a, a marquee names by the dozen for them to bring onto a project like this. And and who knows who was asked and turned something down. Right. But the fact that there is not one among them for right. a multi-season effort of making hour-long horror programming is like 
Yep. You just didn't even fucking try. Like, cause it, and if you did, you didn't try hard enough because you are, you are the people names such as these are, are people who are connected enough to know the answers to these questions. Where are the women? Where can we find women making these things? And, and to bring them onto this project to, to make it better, to yeah. give it greater perspective, to give it more variety, more texture. How do we improve this thing we want to make by bringing more people into it? But that's harder than just calling the people you go to masters of horror dinners with and say, well, guess we got the whole roster right here. Exactly. There's so, by setting the stage the way that you have and, and, and kind of the uh, casual hostility of the mid aughts. Um, oh, yeah. I, I have, I, I have to say, I never watched masters of horrors horror. Like I remember seeing it on the video store shelf and that's how I know it, but I didn't watch it because I, just assumed it was a boys club thing and that stuff wasn't really working for me then and so to see this <laughs> this was really my working first for me then <laughs> it wasn't my jam <laughs> you know like I, in 2004 we have the release of hellbent and seed of chucky we have seen magnificent failures of queer both indie and mainstream horror mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we have um high tension coming in from 03 but i think it didn't even hit video store shelves until what 05 yeah probably um and so so really we're not seeing uh like if it has to be foreign or other or some mm -hmm. kind of like uh, and this falls in that category it's that kind of like between the cracks representation that isn't quite mainstream enough to to you know have mm -hmm. people kicking and screaming so when this opened on uh ida listening to a voicemail breakup which by the way mood like like that is a time right so like when she cries i'm like Oh I mean, yeah, like I'll, I will briefly say that this uh, that sick girl is the story of a I mean, big swing on this one, a lesbian entomologist, a mm -hmm. lesbian bug researcher um, who gets along better with bugs than people who is lovelorn, who's having a hard time finding a mate. She you know, the bug thing is off putting. She's a bit awkward. She's a bit uncomfortable. She has a lovable sexist research partner who really wants her to get out there and not tell women about the bugs that live in her home. And oh, just Max. like, he wants her to get some and he's a dirt bag, but he clearly loves her and cares about her. It's very 2000s. And she at her place of employment, like at, at her, the, it might be a university that she works at uh, in the lobby of, of her floor where her office is, uh, there is a very shy girl who sits and draws every day and her uh, uh, research partner encourages her like, come on, ask her out. Maybe she's free. Turns out she is free. Turns out they do go out and well, things get weirder from there, but it is also a cute relationship. It is cute. Dude, because just what a great intro, Jordan. How okay. the fuck you do that? It's just so impressive. <laughs> I, I'm like in awe every time. Because I'm like ready to tell you about how if I got a if somebody tried to break up with me over voicemail, I would never know because I can't. I don't. I have I have 211 on listen to voicemails. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Like who even? It's it's not whatever. But then I'm thinking <laughs> about when when Ida meets Misty. Misty being the girl who's drawing in the lobby. Mm -hmm. Misty, I want you all to know, is dressed like a lesbian on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes, so she, she is has 100 percent Amber Benson. It's both. It's it's both. It's more a little more on the Amber side, uh -huh. but it really is as if they both became one, one little like drawing witch sitting there. She <laughs> One little drawing witch. I, I love her. Uh, <laughs> I, I love her funny necklace. I love that like weird cut up for collar. I'm here mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. So it like she the whole only thing. draws fairies. Gay. I realize Gay. that. Gay. Gay. 
canonically Sorry. gay. And oh, please, Biff. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, also the Daily Dead article I cited, sorry, the Daily Dead article I cited earlier also pointed out the fact that she is a literal manic pixie dream girl. Which I, thought was <laughs> I didn't realize that, but I was like, oh my God, of course she is. And they take that trope and just like completely spin it on its head, which is fabulous. Yeah. But anyway, what were you going to say, Sam? Well, just that something really special happens in this episode and I that I did not expect. Anytime I see a queer person, I know that if there are two of them, the other one's not making it out of the scene of life. Right, it's not going to yeah. happen. Mm-hmm. If you got, listen, you got one and it's the main character. One of them has got to go. And so <laughs> the thing is, like, it opens on this, like, sad, this sad, like, voicemail. And then she's talking to her sexist coworker, Max. And he mm-hmm. says this thing. Um, I don't even keep books about bugs around the house. Drives the chickies away like poison. Max, this is who I am. Jeez. I'm just saying, at some point you're going to have to make the choice. Babes or bugs? Can't have both. To me, there was this moment which was very odds, which is that uh, reinforcement of this dichotomy of this or that. And that kind of harkens back to May, Lucky McKee's previous film, Mm. where we see that torn depiction of bisexuality. Mm. May, played by the same actor, um, has to really feels conflicted because she's choosing one or the other and and ultimately has to really needs both because that's who she is. Yeah. So now I'm like, okay, what's Lucky going to do? (laughs) <laughs> because <laughs> does she have to pick one or the other right right no that's the best thing about this in my opinion and like huge spoilers so if you don't want to oh all of you yeah obviously fine but sh- the whole kind of like theme is like bugs or babes like you got to choose one and mm-hmm. she gets both and they <laughs> are so happy together at yes. the end pregnant with their bug babies like <laughs> they have it all mm-hmm. i mean so this, they're living the dream this 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 episode is gay to the point of having a mousy lesbian who only draws fairies a lesbian entomologist and they move in together fucking immediately the they yep. u-haul the shit out of this dynamic within like days sure about this Sure, it's not too fast. I have never been so sure about anything in my life, Misty. (laughs) And it is very, because like we have these sort of outside, like you said, there's sort of the B plot there. Like the the main plot is the fact that um, uh, Ida, Ida, right? Ida. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Ida gets a bug shipment from Brazil uh, from a mysterious sender. She opens it and she, it looks like somebody, it's like if you put a suit of armor on a praying mantis, like it is a scary (laughs) ass, like um, crazy hybrid. It looks like it has fucking hair and spikes and it's this angry ass bug that she, of course, thinks is the most beautiful thing in the world because she loves bugs so much. And her whole room, by the way, covered in bugs, <clears throat> every inch of the wall. If my apartment, if every beanie baby was a bug, <laughs> my apartment would be Ida's apartment. She is a bug fanatic. So she gets like Ida gets the super bug. She doesn't know its origins. Well, on her first date with Misty, they go to a restaurant. Misty's already like, listen, I rented a DVD and I thought we could go to your place. And so and I Ida is picking Texas up this fairies, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> Directed by fairies. Tom McLaughlin. 
<clears throat> I mean, for sure. <laughs> no doubt. Um, and so they're they're like they're this date is is progressing along swimmingly. They both think each other is hot. I think that you're very attractive, and I would just crack like a fortune cookie if I didn't out and say it. So they're they go back to the apartment. Well, the super bug has gotten free at this point. I think it's already eaten a dog in the apartment complex. <laughs> and they she doesn't, she's like knows it's loose but for some reason isn't as stressed as she should be like knowing that she's on thin ice with her bigoted landlord who's like um sam you are you are eager i am so i am because (laughs) this depiction of queer relationships rung so true for me because they are both so awkward because i was dating in 2006 when this came out it looked like what dating in 2006 felt like for me as somebody who like had a hard time finding partners because we didn't have like grinder we didn't have all of the tools that we do now to find one another and so going home it's like are you going to be a kind of person that jumps into this are you not there's all this like there's all this like tiptoeing that doesn't really happen now and all of my depictions of queer identity were two people looking at each other from across the bar cut to they're fucking in the bathroom. Mm. And I didn't know how that worked because it didn't work like that for me. <laughs> like I'm I was most of the time. <laughs> yeah. It's so, so this felt so real and so believable. And when their hands like touched and then Aww. she pulls back and it's like, I just felt every, I was hanging on every one of those moments. So I love that depiction. Mm-hmm. And what I also love is just how quickly they fall into being obsessed with each other. I kind of love you. <laughs> you have no idea how long I've been waiting to hear you say that. <laughs> no one's ever loved me before. I really, I will say a thing that I really, one of the things that I most appreciate about Lucky McKee is how he can take, he can add elements to his movies that could very quickly um, present as exploitative. They could make me be like, ah, oh, that's gratuitous. Like, did we need to do that? but he actually stays on the right side of the fence and just adds titillating sort of, you know, I've mentioned sort of before, like red meat aspects to horror. Like maybe it's nudity, maybe it's blood, maybe it's sex. Those things are fun. They don't necessarily, they they can be an enjoyable part of any movie if they're done well, if they're done right and respectfully, and they don't feel like they're just tacked on because the person making the movie wants to like jerk off to it later. You have a movie like All Cheerleaders Die, which as a zomcom exploit gay exploitation movie shouldn't work the way that it does. And yet like the sex scenes, the women making out in that movie, I never feel like it falls on the wrong side of, of creating those scenes. And I feel like it feels like it's giving me those baser sort of, you know, lizard brain things that I want to see in a genre film. And in this, when, Ida and Misty are like making out on the couch and then she you know Misty she's gonna stay the night and I was like okay well I'll get you let me get you some pajamas and like I'll get you some privacy so you can change and Misty's like hold on I don't need pajamas and I don't need privacy and just takes her fucking top off takes her top off right there is standing topless in front of Ida in her home and I was like you know what I don't feel like this is tacked on I'm kind of just super glad that these two get to have sex right now. Like, I'm super glad that this girl is naked in front of this other girl who wants to see her naked and they're gonna get it on. 
and I'm stoked for them. And there was there was also like a charming sort of bashfulness about the way, you know, Misty is like kind of exposed in front of her and she wants to be, but she's also nervous, like you said, that kind of awkwardness and that that unsureness of like, okay, how, how safely gay are we here? Like navigating that. But then like looks at her and she's like, well, come here, like come closer to me. And I was like, this is handled really well. And this is nudity deployed in a way I feel like is adding value to the scene in a way that I don't typically trust men to do. And Lucky McKee manages to deliver on that front consistently. And it's the thing that I appreciate most about him. I absolutely agree with that. And I think a large part of it, you know, coming from like a viewer is just that the characters are so well-rounded and dynamic and truly like empathetic and we feel for them and we want them to succeed Mm -hmm. and all these things. And it's not just there for like, you know, our sort of like sexual entertainment or like the director or the viewer, you know. It feels like it's for them. Yeah. It feels like it's for Ida and Misty. Absolutely. If I may, I'd like to talk about Max for that reason. Mm. This is why I think he works. His name's Max, right? The straight guy. I mean, he might as well be. Let's just call him Max. (laughs) I'm going to commit. So so the thing is, Max is presented as the heterosexual attitudes of the 2000s. Yeah, I mean, straight up, like his yeah. opening line, or one of his opening lines, he says, let me just look really quick, because I, I wrote it down because it's so fucking stupid. Okay, so she says that she just wants a connection with somebody, and he goes, you're into chicks, darling. That's a scientific impossibility. Wow, and he then, is, like, mind you, puts, viewer, doing the scissoring motion scissoring. Oh, yeah, yeah, with yeah, his yeah, hands. Yes. Okay. So now I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. So what I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was oh, okay, going to be like, so I'm thinking this is going to be unintentional. This is just mm-hmm. who this person is. Then the second time we see him or one mm-hmm. of the one of the next times we see him in a meaty way, it's during her date. He fucking calls and he and she's like on her date and his hands are down his pants while he's talking <laughs> mm-hmm. about it and i'm like oh this is so gross this is the bob dole in the middle of the pepsi commercial <laughs> of britney spears in 04 right uh-huh. or, or yeah. not 04 02 um easy boy Here's what's really going on. Uh, Bob Dole had done a bunch of Viagra commercials and he was the, like, it was synonymous with Mm -hmm. dicks. That's every joke on late night TV. It was dicks and Britney Spears. So now we have a cutaway to Bob Dole, which Pepsi is saying dicks and they're doing it for the benefit of men because men in the 2000s, Men in the two thousand men men are always so fucking fragile. Like God forbid they enjoy dancing. Like they like like a stripper dancing, doing this like masterful art. But they're like mm. tips in my face. We can't talk about that. Anyway, so <laughs> Britney's doing this incredible job. They cut to Bob Dole to make men comfortable, and that's mm. what I'm thinking is happening in this movie. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. oh, we're cutting to Max to make men comfortable. Right. We're gonna watch him touch himself or mm-hmm. make crude jokes, and that's gonna be it. And here's the thing, Lucky McKee came through as max <laughs> continues through the story he is consistently objectifying their queer relationship mm-hmm. he is constantly talking about how it's hot what is and isn't hot mm-hmm. he talks about what would and wouldn't be pleasing to him yeah and at knowing all of this about him there is a moment when he is confronted with a big bad mm-hmm. with a with a transformed creature which we will get to i know i'm ahead of myself but it's important Mm -hmm. so when he's confronted with this crazy bug lady yeah he fucking runs he is just he's not he doesn't know what to do with himself and you know what he's dead so fucking fast and our queer leads have been alive this whole movie 
Well, and also, <laughs> because- and also, what 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 leads him into that moment is in a panic. Ida calls him, and she's she's in danger. She's like, "I need your help. I need you to get over here." He's like, "I'm there right now." Drops the phone, runs, and goes to her. Like yeah. in the in crunch like hero. time, in crunch time, Max. Yeah, yeah, in crunch time, in any Max, other movie, he would rescue her. In any other mm-hmm. movie, he would even get a punch in, <laughs> yeah. right? Because he's he's fucking um, the old guy in Halloween. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's just there to take all, like to fucking. Oh God, I don't even want to, guys. Why? So, but he's you know. So I'm thinking, oh God, here we go. You know what I mean? He's gonna come in with his gun and 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 woodsman this thing, and it's like, <laughs> no, he's not. No, he's no, fucking he, not. Because Lucky enters, Mickey knew what the fuck he was doing. He enters, and yeah. what we see is like at this point, Misty has has transformed into a pretty incredible, practically rendered, By the way, yeah. fantastic the transformation. The human bug, the human bug monster, is really good. And Max, he hears his friend desperate in there. He's in there to save her. He's her loyal friend. At the end of the day, he breaks down the door. He gets in. He sees what's happening. Misty, the fucking mantis spots him right away throws his ass up against the door and all we see of max is his face being eaten off as blood pours down the door and it's like well that resolved fast and then his dead body just falls to the fucking hardwood like that that's it that's 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 the story of max it ended right there but we still have misty and ida yep so i think that's a statement Especially in a time when all of the men that we have, if the male viewers are seeing themselves through this guy, mm-hmm. you know, like <laughs> these lesbians and that makes it okay. And that's what, <laughs> that's what his fate is. Um, fuck. Yeah. yeah. So, I also, oh, sorry, go ahead. no, no, no I no, want to hear you. I was just going to say that I, I feel like, um, you know, in regards to that character, Ida, she's established to be like a very lonely person. And this mm-hmm. is really the only person that yes. she interacts with. Therefore, like, yeah, I guess he's her friend by default because there's no, there are no other options. Um, it's just these two people working together all day, every day. And he's super gross and <laughs> worse and makes all these terrible comments. And throughout the movie, she just kind of like laughs them off. Mm-hmm. And as that happens, I was like, yeah, that is what women do when guys say shit like that. Like yeah. in, you know, in 2006 and now, because it's uncomfortable and you don't know how to deal with it. And, you know, I, I get it. It sucks, but I get it. Well, and it, it, I think a thing, you know, to go, to go queer, to go queer horror history on this, I think a excellent, a, a most excellent and um, what should be enduring part of the conversation you are instigating about sick girl, Vivian, um, is that what we have, because, you know, the Misty gets like, like bit basically. She gets stung in, in the ear by the super bug the first night she's over at Ida's apartment. And it Her is implanted. Pillow, by the way, terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thanks um, for that nightmare. It stings, her, it stings her right in the ear and it injects its poison and that it links her and the bug and she starts to become she becomes like linked to and starts to become a hybrid of this bug it is it seems like either the multi-sexual insect something like they couldn't like pinpoint its gender there's a whole conversation about the the gender of this bug but it Mm -hmm. does um have the ability to impregnate 
um, female hosts. So we have Misty over the course of this episode. She's infected early on and she starts like her ear turns into this abscess. She's getting really itchy. It's changing her personality. She's getting really erratic. There's some great like gooey shitty gore. And what we see in Misty is somebody who is becoming the monstrous she is she is the queer becoming the monster and we have the contrast to her of Ida who is who is deeply kind and empathetic and lovely and she she is a queer woman removed from the monstrosity she is in opposition to it and so what you have is in like general rules there can only be one survivor and also the gays gotta go So what you kind of think is going to happen in this movie is that Bug is going to overtake Misty. Misty is going to kill Ida and then Bug Misty is going to carry on and it's going to be like a oh shit kind of ending. But what ultimately happens is after Max is vanquished, Misty doesn't want to kill Ida. Misty wants to keep Ida and the Superbug wants to also infect Ida and make her part of like the bug horde. So while you have like bug Misty, monster bug Misty staring down at Ida on the floor and you have Ida staring helplessly back at her, you see the little bug stinger come out and it pokes her right in the ear and the poison is being implanted. And then what we cut to after that is the two of them both impregnated by the super bug, like a late term pregnancy, both of them have become the queer monster, but in doing so, have found their happy ending. Today is the day I felt them kicking all night long. You're gonna beat me? I can't believe you're gonna beat me. I got knocked up first, you know. It inverts the it inverts the terror and the evil of the monstrosity to mean that once these women have, you know, sort of embraced what's happened to them and then they've found peace with one another, they've found love in their relationship and they've found harmony in this symbiosis with this superbug that's just like hanging out with them in the house and kind of being the father to their eventual bug human children. You see the fact that because they exist only in a context of their weird bug and also lesbian partnership household, the rules of straight culture and heteronormativity don't apply to them inside those walls. They're just living their little modern family weird life that's probably gonna mean spawning and taking over the entire human race with the hundreds of bug human eggs that they're going to hatch. But like they ultimately, and their transformation into something we would consider gross or disgusting is the best possible ending. And it's the one that you didn't know was coming, but you see it and you're like, oh fuck yeah, that's what I was rooting for. You know a lot about queer horror. On this couch. I'm making this documentary. If I could interview you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm all go put Vivian on the record for put Vivian on the record for Sick Girl in the queer horror documentary. Um, and I really, I really appreciate how in a Masters of Horror episode, Lucky McKee was like, oh, I know exactly what I want to do. This. I have ideas. Well, the other thing um, I was going to mention is that I can't remember if they overtly state it in Sick Girl or if it's just heavily implied, but we definitely get the sense that Misty's dad mm-hmm. does not approve of her being a lesbian. Yeah. And that um, that this is why he sent the super bug to Ida. Yeah, surprise everybody. The guy who sent the bug to, the mysterious man who sent the bug to Ida is indeed Misty's father. And he was, Misty's, Misty's father was like the mentor of Ida at the university in like entomology. So it all ties together like that in the end. 
He sent it to me. I don't know why, but he did. I know why he sent it to you, Ida. Why? You know? He sent you the bug so that it would bite you and infect you and make you go fucking crazy. He wanted me to be repulsed by you because he knew I was in love with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had been going on for like years prior. And so the dad sends Ida the bug, hoping it will like bite her and infect her. And then they get this beautiful vengeance by uh-huh. having these like, you know, insect human hybrids together. They're so happy at the end when they're like living their dream life impregnated with their bug children. Yeah. And they like make a joke about, oh, well, I guess he's going to have like a few hundred grandkids now. She's <laughs> a few hundred cigars. And it's so good. It's so good because they get such great vengeance on him. Well, and two, like there, there is like the empathy with which he approaches um, his queer female characters is, is consistently impressive. And, and obviously Angela Bettis is like a ride or die for him. And, and that's yeah. a very fruitful creative collaboration. And, but like, there's that wonderful moment of like, when we learn about Misty, Misty's had a crush on Ida for so long because she's known her through the etymology department because her dad worked there. But... I got the package before. I've loved you for years, Ida. I used to come to daddy's classes and I would just stare at you and draw you for hours. I've always loved you, Ida. So she's been harboring this crush for ages and her like great happy end, her like great fairy tale dream is to have ended up with Ida this woman who is the object of her affection and they like have this cute moment where they're like laying on Ida's bed you know talking to one another and she's she's telling her like you know I I I I'm finally happy because I finally have you like I didn't think this could happen for me I didn't think I could feel this way I didn't think this life was for me and you have a character clearly coming from a home where she was rejected by at least one parent for being gay. And then you have these two coming together where they've never been allowed to realize this kind of contentment and honesty with another person. And so you have just like a really fucking sweet, like not coming out story, but like coming into one's own story. It's it's a good queer love story that doesn't have to be a coming out story, which is typically what queer love stories are still anchored to at a mass production level. Yeah, true, very true. There is a through line here that I think is really important. Um, It has to do with the fact that the father sent it. We have to go back and to Miss Beasley, the landlady. So now we described her a little bit. Um, Basically, she's like, just got back from Chick-fil-A and she's in the hallway <laughs> trying to tell these women how to live their lives. Yes. And, uh, and she's got this little girl who's adorable and just like, and is so sweet. And, and, and that, uh, Ida, Ida gets to be, uh, a role model to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as um, Misty becomes a bad bitch, mm-hmm. when she, as Miss Beasley antagonizes her, she actually, like a lot of queer transformation stories, or even like Carrie, like we see with these films that we tend to gravitate towards, she has this moment of power where um, Miss Beasley is like, just like, I've seen you too. Are you saying it's your right to pollute the mind of my little granddaughter? You know, she looks up to you, has stars in her eyes for you. 
And all this time, you must have been... You must have been looking at her like she was a little piece of meat. Now wait just a goddamn minute, Lana! And there's this beautiful moment where Misty's like, Now, Miss Beasley, I'm sorry, but... Shut your mouth, you! 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 you. <laughs> what, are you stuck on a hard part of the alphabet or something? Misty, what is wrong with you? For me, as again, as a person who lived through 2006, I knew what a big moment that was because what was happening culturally with queer people was we weren't queer people. We were gay people. Mm -hmm. And the face of gay people was cis white gay men um, who were going to fight for our marriage rights because that's what people were comfortable with because Mm -hmm. of Will and Grace. Mm -hmm. And so anybody else that didn't fit that description was not a part of the mainstream movement to assimilate and get marriage equality. And everybody just kind of sucked it up because we were like, I guess this is how it has to be. Right. Of course, it turned out it didn't have to be that way. We have history to show us this. But in that moment, any sort of deviation from submitting to that heteronormativity, that that heteroculture was seen as like, not just, uh, it wasn't just taboo because it was rude. It was like unpatriotic. You just couldn't (laughs) fucking be yourself. You're right. And so that moment is actually way bigger in the context of 2006 than it would feel in 2020. And I I know there's just one more thing because when she finally does, so Missy's in the hallway, like later, just her and Miss Beasley. And she's like, why don't you like me? Mm -hmm. And Miss Beasley's like, great, an opportunity to read you, sign me up. Yeah. And so she's like, do you really want to know, dear? Yes, I really want to know, dear. I don't like you because I think you are perverse. You, your lady friend, and your disgusting little pets. I don't want scum like you within a mile of my granddaughter. She's a good girl, and I don't want her exposed to a couple of- Dykes? Lesbos, fuzz bumpers, is that what you're trying to say? She basically calls her, she says that she's trying to, what Miss Beasley accuses Misty of trying to pollute her daughter's mind, which goes back to what I was saying about the propaganda at the time um, being so focused on kids. Miss Beasley didn't just dislike that they were lesbians. She did it in this noble way that she was protecting her granddaughter. Mm -hmm. And now that's where this gets really interesting thematically, because if you tie that together with what the father was doing this entire time, that reveal at the end, the father sent the bug to Ida because he was trying to protect his daughter from becoming queer Mm -hmm. miss beasley in her hallway moment says all this time you've been looking at her as her granddaughter like she's a piece of meat yeah the assumption is is that the queer predator is trying to find prey and Mm -hmm. turn them in because there was this you know that was the the school of thought at the time that the the teachers queer teachers could turn kids so seeing that that the dad sent this to protect his daughter from being turned and ultimately the daughter and ida were both turned into bugs Mm -hmm. is fucking beautiful because the through line here i mean to me this entire episode is a big fuck you to all of these anti-queer rights activists or whatever they were you know making this propaganda at the time this this couldn't be more loud and clear well and i think too um 
that in that in that inversion of the the queer monster and and and, and often the monster is the one with the, the the monster is the one with the power and that so it like it blurs the idea of like you know the queer monster being inherently bad but also the queer monster is the most powerful object in the story and it's sort of the big bad that has to be defeated and it has to we have to marshal all the resources of humanity to possibly be able to take this monster down the most acute way we see Misty's monstrosity manifest up to the point where she becomes a human mantis is her absolutely shredding the landlady in the hallway when the landlady is being a bitch. You afraid your precious little ladybug, she's gonna grow up one day and she's gonna like other ladybugs, hmm? Or maybe we're gonna infect her with some kind of pussy-eating virus, is that it? Like, it's when we see her standing up to a bigot. What we, what this poison, what this infection has done to Misty has given her the spine to stand up to a bully and say, you don't get to push me around. And so I think that the the fact that when we are, when we are not necessarily meant to, but when we would conventionally be meant to perceive Misty as being at her most calloused and evil is when she is actually standing up to the most evil character in the entire episode, which is the landlady. Like it just emboldens her to say fuck off to a homophobe who absolutely reminds them that she can evict them for being lesbians in 2006. Mm -hmm. They say it's her right. And she interrupts (laughs) by the way, it's not. (laughs) I do want to just add that, that, you know, we talked about what a happy ending this is. And I think that it is a, it is, but it's also important to note that it's a happy, it's as happy as an ending can be for a queer person in 2006. In 2006, a queer person was not going to be able to ultimately marry the person they love. They're Mm -hmm. not going to be able to go to work and not be fired for being queer. They're not going to be able to live in an apartment free of wondering if they could be evicted for being who they are in the Mm -hmm. hallways. So these two are the monsters they get to be together and get to be happy and have things happen on their terms because it's as happy. That is the happy ending for them. They don't have another option. Right. And for and everybody who is queer. It, and they can get away with it as long as they are passing because yes. there is that thing inside of them that can manifest and scare people away and destroy right. people. But as long as they're passing, they can be okay. I would, right. I would guess that queer people watching this go, that was a happy ending. And that straight people watching this go, that was not a happy ending. Right. It's interesting that we all interpreted it as a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> the queers have reached a consensus on exactly. this episode of Odds Tyrion. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I love Lucky McKee. I love his weird sensibilities and his characters and the like, pop music cues and all of his stuff. I, I just mm-hmm. love him so much. And this was just like so perfect and amazing. And I just like fell in love with it. And I've seen it like multiple times since then. It's by far my favorite. So I didn't, you know, have a lot to like cling to right. um, as like a bisexual horror fan in my youth. So mm-hmm. I, I would have loved it had mm-hmm. I seen it earlier on. But the fact that I saw it when I did, and I was just like able to appreciate um, how sort of progressive it was for the time. And, um, you know, it was just great. And it really resonated with me in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Well, a thing I find that that persistently troubles me, and I don't remember if this came up with on the episode with Chelsea um, or if I just that made that from my head. But 
what I see in in movies that that Lucky makes, and it's not like they're like huge budget movies, but like they're they're movies that got made, and that in and of itself is a small miracle. I would like to see something that I would I would love to see so much more that looks like Sick Girl, that looks like May, that looks like all cheerleaders die from women actually getting money put in their hands here in the United States, where I you know I feel like we like to think that we have a big and robust and bustling horror industry, but anytime we look to sort of the next woman who is a sensation and an up and comer, she's not from around here. And thank God they're, thank God other places are giving women these chances are letting Rose Glass become Rose Glass. Because mm-hmm. for, for all the women doing amazing work here, it seems like, I don't know, maybe just they, maybe it's the way the media, I'm sure it's the way the media is handling it too, but just the idea that like the lionization seems to crop up the most when they can herald a filmmaker um, bringing in bringing in a movie from abroad instead of nurturing their homegrown talent the way that they should be. What I will say is that I've been on sets where um, from across the board, what I've seen is that uh, that women don't have access to the same amount of choices that mm-hmm. men do. And mm-hmm. so are often like what you said specifically, Jordan, about wanting to see material like what Lucky McKee has made, but coming from a woman yes. in the U.S. Yes, yes. How about this? How about uh, production studios aren't just handing that material that that dude wrote and having Mm -hmm. a woman come and fix it so it's PC enough for them to have to Mm -hmm. pass it off as woke? How about we actually let women tell the stories they want to tell and have the characters they want to have and not have some like executive at the high up level come in and be like, but actually, is that relatable? And then retool it just enough that everybody fucking hates it when it comes out. You all know what I'm talking about. I don't have to say anything. You all know which titles again and again and yes i am throwing shade yes i am being direct about it because realistically we all know that's what happened if vivian brought this script to masters of horror that same year it would have been a no do you know what i'm saying that's what i'm it's like there's a freedom in in the the saleability of being male in hollywood and that is that's the reality and I, yeah. I just, it, what bothers me about it is that we can sit here and this is no shade to Lucky because he's still, he still made decisions that nobody else is making. And we're exactly. celebrating them today in this episode. They are bold mm-hmm. decisions. Mm-hmm. It just sucks that you have to be a man to be able to make bold decisions in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the other thing I was going to say, Sam, when you were talking about, you know, how um, studio scripts go through all these like passes to become more like digestible for the masses to the point where everyone hates it. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. like when that happens and then a female directs that script, who gets the blame? Always the female director. Not the studio. I think, you know, to, to just like borrow something completely trite, it's like, in, in many ways, it's like, this is allyship kind of thing, like where Lucky has taken the platforms that he has been able to get, where he mm-hmm. is, he's taken those opportunities to like have the miracle of actually getting your independent movie made. And he has over and over and over again, insisted that the heroines yes. will do what they do. They're, so often they will be queer. So often it will be sexual, but not exploitative in a way that actually does seem to care about female pleasure on screen, which in and of itself is like a fucking activist move, (laughs) an an activist decision to make, Um, you know, to to be, 
to be a man in his position and recognize like the power of Caitlin Stacy in <laughs> and all cheerleaders die to work so closely with an actress like Angela Bettis, an actress who will leave it on the fucking table for him and will get so weird and strange and into the dark corners of the material that she does. Like to have such a fruitful collaboration with an actress like that, who's so, they so clearly trust one another to do these strange things together. Like that is the only way that it gets better if men in a position of having their art made say that it matters to me to put a different point of view on this when I am given the privilege of producing something. That it matters that like, I, I'm not just going to make something with decorative nods to inclusion. I'm not just going to make something with decorative nods to women because we've all seen those movies mm-hmm. in, in especially our, our more current years that are doing the absolute least to make overtures toward progress and just are fucking ham fisting it in a way that I'm like, you know what? I kind of wish this movie had just been 10 men and no women and you hadn't (laughs) fucked up their storylines at all because I would rather see them not here than you Mm -hmm. doing what you're doing to your like gay, black, brown or women on screen that you've brought with you. Please Uh, leave us out of it. Please just leave us out of it. So many times, honestly. fucking man. I have had that thought so many times. And I right. don't need any like third to half baked women on here just to nod at me to let me know that I'm a demographic point that does exist and I do need to be pandered to in some way. Like, no, unless you're going to do it well, truly do write what you know, but don't yeah. give me like what, what Lucky manages to do over and over and over again is to not give performative not create performative avenues of inclusion, but to actually yes. create concrete, rich character opportunities for the actresses he puts in his movie and be really adept at making really satisfying little gay stories. Lucky McKee, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I love your gay shit. Love your gay shit. <laughs> Makes love me your bi shit. Yeah, I love, I love, love you love it all. bi shit. Um, you make it all. Yeah, I love that bisexuals exist in 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 things that you make. That's awesome. Oh, mm-hmm. so now, do we feel like that brings us to the the logical end of our of our sick girl conclusion? Then I yeah. do want to say yes. yes, it does. Just two words: bug POV. Oh my god! I know. <laughs> you I know I love notes. You're you right. know I, I love a baby POV. Yeah, I love I love a POV. You love a non-trad POV. I love it, and you know what? We get bug POV not once, not twice, but multiple times <laughs> in this film. Wait, it I commits. also have to say one more thing. I'm oh, so please. sorry, but I uh, when I looked this up on IMDb, mm-hmm. the synopsis reads. A story about an evil bug with the ability to change people's behavior. A commentary on the dangers of moving into a relationship too quickly. Is it? Is Is, that? That is not the synopsis I would write. That was not my takeaway. With our straight viewer at home, the one of you, a listener. Uh, Listen, (laughs) is is that the movie you saw? And again, this goes back to what you're saying about the ending, where it's just like, oh, that was someone's interpretation. Yes. They got that. We watched the same thing, and mm. that was their takeaway. Okay. Wow. <laughs> wow, what a note to end on. I fantastic. You're welcome. Vivian, thank you so much no, for being here with us. This has been a, a pure delight. 
I love talking horror with you and thank you for coming so prepared and with such a great choice. Yeah, Thank you, so I, much. you, really you completely, you, you honored and, and fully vindicated the, the zag into the, the non-traditional <laughs> odds Tyrion material. Absolutely. So Agreed. where then, if you would like people to find you or your work, or you don't have to say anything at all, uh, what would you like to direct them to for, for you, Vivian Vaughn? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have all the things on my website, which is vivianvon.com, V-I-V-I-E-N-N-E-V-A-U-G-H-N.com. And that has um, a link to my Death Summer segment, A Christmas Miracle, which is now on Clips TV on YouTube. See so that not- scare that <laughs> Sam was talking about. Yes, Do it. exactly. Um, and <clears throat> that has, you know, all the other good things. And then obviously um, I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> on Instagram, it's my name without vowels. And on Twitter, I'm Vivian <laughs> Um, you can find me at Sam Weinman on Instagram and Twitter. And you can, uh, if you watch December, my short is, uh, oh, oh, it's called Milk and Cookies. Thank you. <laughs> I forgot for a second. Milk and Cookies and uh, Bitch Puddin's in it. So it's fucking great. Mm-hmm. You can find me uh, further talking about uh, the injustices done to late 90s and millennium era actresses yes. and pop stars on Twitter. Let's keep that conversation going forever because there's a lot of reckoning to do. Uh, that's J-O-R-C-R-U. And then, you know, there's always the Patreon, patreon.com slash Cruciola if you want to pay me to make the wonderful things that you listen to me say. Uh, so, you know, patronize each of us. And uh, thank you again to Vivian for joining us today. And to thank you again to the folks at home for joining us as always. Thank you. Goodbye.